You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma podcast. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Excited to share this episode with you today. But before we do, I've got to thank our sponsors. First of all, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. They've been a huge part of this podcast for the last few years. So the Oklahoma Hall of Fame have been sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com. And for daily updates, go to Oklahoma HOF on Instagram and give them a follow. Our other sponsor today is the Chickasaw Nation. Now, the Chickasaw Nation have sponsored pretty much everything in Oklahoma. They're a huge supporter of Oklahoma. And it's an honor to have their name and their brand supporting this podcast. So a huge shout out to Governor Anatoby for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot. Our third sponsor is Diffie Ford Lincoln down in El Reno. Now, this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine, um, play a lot of golf together. I've bought my cars from them. Do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned Oklahoma business down in El Reno. They're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, DiffieFord.net, and then on Instagram at DiffieFordLincoln. And let's get into today's episode. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hoon here, your host, back with another episode. Today, we are in the Greenwood District in Tulsa to talk to uh, Oklahoma Hall of Famer, was inducted in 2021, Mr. Hannibal B. Johnson. Thank you so much for inviting us down here. Excited to dive into your story. Excited to, um, I mean, share some history and the stuff that you're passionate about. Um, you know, it's uh, it, there's a lot of things. I don't think we're going to get to everything, which is what I say pretty much in most podcasts because, you know, the people like, that I interview, there's so much. They've done so much, and, and it just depends on what we're going to talk about today. So for people listening, I will put a link to your website in the description so they can go to that and read all the things if we don't touch on everything today. And I definitely encourage people to come to this building and go through the experience because it is very impactful. Um done a great job being curated here and, and everything that this building stands for it's fantastic uh, i was fortunate to do a podcast with chef chef schaefer architects to who did the building uh, and walk through just before it opened and um, i'm excited to kind of go through here this afternoon and see see it in its full light but thank you so much for having us super excited to dive into your story um, so i guess before we get into everything uh, tell, tell me a little bit about you what's your kind of oklahoma story so I came to Tulsa in 1984 out of law school to work for a law firm. I had clerked for this law firm after the second year of law school at Harvard. Uh, I'm originally from Fort Smith, Arkansas, which is 100 miles southeast of here. So I knew that I wanted to be back in kind of the region. So my options would be maybe Little Rock or Dallas, Tulsa, Kansas City, someplace like that. So because I had worked at a law firm, Connor Winters, here in Tulsa, the summer of my second year, um, I had a really good experience. I decided to come back to that law firm. That's how I landed here. And the trajectory of my professional career uh, was something that was unexpected and, and unplanned. Um, I just happened to land in a place that has a remarkable history. 
um, the whole Black Wall Street story, the entrepreneurship, the capitalism, the uh, economic prowess in this community called Greenwood, uh, the, the catastrophe that was the massacre in 1921 and the resurrection from that uh, shortly thereafter. Um, so that that history was something that was compelling for me and because I early on was asked to write a guest editorial column for the black newspaper, the Tulsa, the Oklahoma Eagle, um, I decided ultimately to write a book about this history. The original book, Black Wall Street from Riot to Renaissance in Tulsa's Historic Greenwood District came out in 1998 and um, really have been fascinated in learning more about that history ever since that that point and my my one familial connection to the history is that just by by a fluke my father graduated from Booker T Washington High School here in Tulsa in 1942 and so he knew some of the icons from Booker the Booker T of old and he he went to high school here only because he had an aunt who, who lived in Tulsa. He grew up in rural Arkansas and Ozark. Um, schools were segregated. And for whatever reason, he spent one year living with her his senior year of high school and graduated from Booker T. Okay. Uh, why, why do you want to get be a lawyer? Why do you want to get into law school? Where does that come from? For me, at the time, as I recall, I was thinking about what what education would give me the most options. And going to law school, I thought at the time, would do that. And, and in fact, I, I stand by that even today. I think going to law school is um, really a prudent move for anybody. If you have the interest and if you have the, the finances, uh, then going to law school enables you to do all sorts of things. Um, practicing law is certainly one of them, but, but, but a law degree is really helpful in business, it's helpful in the nonprofit sector, it's helpful in the arts, it's helpful in anything that you will ever do. Yeah. Was education pushed on you, kind of really valued growing up? Was it something that mom and dad really valued you know, yes. as kids and stuff? Yeah, and that, I, I was fortunate way. that I had a mother and father who believed in education. Mm-hmm. Um, I had parents who went to every PTA meeting and every band concert and everything that I did and showed that remarkable kind of support that is really key to a child's success mm-hmm. in the educational arena. Yeah, and so going through high school education is obviously front of the line and, and you're big in your studies. When did you make that decision then to become a lawyer? Was that quite an early decision or did it come to you just kind of as like you just said? I decided to go to law school when I was in college. Oh, wow. yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, I, I, I thought about a bunch of other things. I remember as as a junior high school student, I, th- I thought I wanted to be a psychologist. I'm not sure exactly why, um, but it would be interesting. Um, so I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do until I think I made the decision probably in my sophomore year of college. Yeah. Well, going into college, um, obviously, you know, you have a huge passion for history and, and that ties into everything that you do, you know, in this area as well and the books that you've written. Was history something you developed late or was that an early on passion as well from a young age? It's It was something that came along later because unfortunately, I mean, I don't think I was very different from, from many students. Uh, history as I experienced it, was was taught as um, something that's ancillary, something that is um, 
wrote. So while I made A's in my history classes, I made A's because I memorized a bunch of stuff that didn't seem to be connected in any particular way. And I was able to regurgitate that stuff on exams. But I didn't really learn anything that painted a a fuller, more complete picture of the world. And once you understand history that way is something that is a is a connector um, something that offers lessons on life and living then it becomes a much more fascinating topic the, the other thing about history that was unfortunate in my experience is that history was essentially what I would describe as pablum it was unobjectionable non-controversial and often not not in fact true. <laughs> it was an incomplete picture of the world. And history becomes fascinating when you tell history warts and all. You don't sanitize it when it's told from multiple perspectives. Yeah. And so when you get to, you know, your sophomore, junior year here at university and you decide that, you know, I want to be a lawyer, that's going to be my next avenue... And obviously, most people who think of law, they think a few schools, right? They think of Harvard, they think of the Ivy League schools. Tell me about that process as, you know, a young man thinking, you know what, I'm going to be a lawyer. And I'm going to do the best thing I can to go to Harvard Law School because that seems to be the best place to go. Tell me about that time in your yeah. life and that whole kind of journey. Well, that actually was not my thought process. I thought, I want to go to law school. Let me apply to several schools. Let me apply to University of Arkansas where I got my undergraduate degree, a double major in economics and sociology. Let me pry, apply to the University of Arkansas at Little Rock because they offer, uh, they were offering me a scholarship and a stipend and summer jobs and all that. Let me apply to University of Texas. It's relatively close, a great law school. But let me also apply to Stanford and Harvard. So I've applied to five places. And uh, I had an older sister who lived in Northern California. So I really fancied the idea of going to Stanford because it was close to where she was. Um, but, But in talking with her, what she said was, and after I received my acceptance from Harvard, you got accepted to Harvard. You must go. You absolutely must go. You're, there's no decision to be made. It's something you really, really need to do. And she really convinced me because my, my father was leaning toward, you know, University of Arkansas at Little Rock where I had, you know, full free ride and summer jobs and all that. Uh, fortunately, I listened to my, my sister and it was... Um, the rest is history. So, yeah. what, what's that? What um, when you get that acceptance letter? You know, what, what's that day like? And, and obviously, you know, you mentioned your sister convinces you. Were you kind of when you get that letter? Are you thinking, I really have a decision to make now, or are you thinking, Wow, like I, I, I'm I'm qualified enough. I've been accepted into Harvard. It's quite a you know or Stanford. They're both prestigious universities, especially in the law practice. What, what was what was going through your mind when you get that letter? Yeah, it, it was. Stunning, to say the least. And then, you know, I, I did talk to her, you know, after getting the letter. And uh, she, you know, again said, you just have to go. I mean, it's, the, it's it, hands down, it's the, it's the best choice. Of course, I'd never been really outside of Arkansas and Texas and Oklahoma during the during that period, so it was like going to a, to a foreign place for me. It was, it was culture shock. Um, 
but in the end, certainly it was worth it. Yeah. And then as a successful kind of academic up until that point, you know, you don't get in without having a great track record. And you mentioned, you know, you're getting A's in history and all these things. Um, what's it like for you kind of educationally at that level when you do get to Harvard and you're around similar like-minded people who are very, you know, intelligent and doing their thing and very diligent and then see the, the value in education. What's it like when you, when you arrive, are you kind of like, I'm among my, my people, my friends, this is where I want to be. I mean, was it quite a hard transition or was it kind of, kind of easy to get into it? It certainly was not not the sort of pleasant feeling of being among friends and peers and so forth because, you know, in my class, my first year law school class, there are 500 students divided into four sections. In my section, there were probably, I would say, five to nine people who had PhDs. There were several medical doctors. There were people who had, uh, had done their undergraduate work at Stanford and Harvard and Yale. So it was enormously intimidating, especially for somebody who had never traveled and never um, never visited the East Coast, let alone Harvard. So it was really tough in many ways for the first year. Yeah. But like anything else, once you get acclimated, um, you, you, you come to understand that you do belong, in fact, and, and you, you will make it through. Yeah. Um, so the psychological burden was enormous, though, at the beginning. And you, you mentioned, you know, you, you had to double major in sociology and economics and, and you know, you're, you're very aware of what's happening and the people you're around and your sociology brain is probably picking up on certain cues. During that time, then that freshman year, did you ever have any, have any doubts or any things thinking, I don't know, maybe law school isn't for me. Maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe I can go back to Arkansas and, and get a job in economics and history. Was there anything that you kind of had to get over or, or have a mind shift around with that stuff? Yeah, I, I think it was it was kind of the imposter syndrome, wondering if if I really belong there. Um, but you know, ultimately, I don't know exactly how, but I, I resolved that. And the next, the, the last two years were quite enjoyable um, and uh, perfectly manageable. It was it, it's really mind over matter ultimately. Um, at least that's the way it played out for me. Yeah. So, so you get through that first year during your time at Harvard. Do you are you being kind of persuaded or groomed by any of your professors saying, "Hey, I think you'd be great at this law. You should go this way." You know, you know, especially Harvard. You've got people coming in from big firms recruiting you to places. You know, you're probably getting pulled in all sorts of directions. Is there anything from that time that that really defines kind of? the next few years or the next decades of your life, a decision that you made or didn't make during that time? Yeah. So you have very limited personal interaction with the professors. Okay. So there's no professor who's sort of guiding you through life. That doesn't happen because okay. it's, it's a big school and there are a bunch of really sort of ambitious, connected people and um, that, that would be rare. I did unfortunately find myself behaving somewhat like a lemming, just sort of going the direction that other people go, which is to go to law firms. Because there are many other options besides working in a law firm after you, after you leave law school. But for some reason, I felt like that was the thing that I needed to do. And I, you know, I, would, I think I would rethink that if I had, had it to do all over again. Yeah. And... and you know, you've written a bunch of books and written articles, and like you mentioned earlier, you know, you're asked to write an article and wrote a book ultimately about, you know, 
everything else. Are you writing during this time as well? Or are you just like, is there a passion, a side project that, hey, when I have some time, I'm always reading, I have a fascination of reading and writing, or did that develop just through- At, being, In law school, you mean? I know, but just, just in general, as a kid growing up, and then through that time going to law school, obviously when you're in law school at Harvard, you don't have time to do anything else. No, I didn't have time you know? to, yeah, I, yeah. But obviously you develop a passion to write. Where does that come from? I'm a verbal linguistic learner. There's no question about that. Um, so that's, that's always been my, my attraction. I've always written one thing or the other, yeah. um, whether it's essays or letters to the editor or whatever. Um, the writing a book seemed to, you know, at first blush, it seemed to be, a, be daunting. Um, I've written 10 books. I'm working on an 11th book, and it's... It, it's a process like any other process, and it's something that that um, is 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 doable once you learn what your process is. Um, but I, I think I've always enjoyed writing, and it, but, but it wasn't. I haven't always said, "Oh, I'm, I'm going to write a book." Yeah. I mean, that's not the way it worked out. Yeah. So when you ultimately graduate from law school. What, is, what are the decisions on the table and then where do you go from there? Is there any decisions that, that you turn down that you think, hey, maybe life would have worked out differently if I'd have gone this route instead of a different route? You mentioned coming back and doing law school here, right? I, I think after law school, of course, I already had, I had already worked in Tulsa yeah. for a summer. So I just came back to that, that same firm. Uh, if I were doing it over again I might have considered going to um, kind of a smaller boutique firm that specialized I, I had a particular interest in constitutional law and first amendment stuff so what what if I had pursued that I don't know um, but I think if I'd known more at the time I would have considered the options more seriously uh, and not just sort of blindly gone to work for a law firm because that's, well, that's what everybody else was doing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at that time in your life, it's, I mean, it, it's the decisions you make, right, are ultimately going to set you up for the next decades and might set you back. Who knows? We, you know, that's hindsight. But it is interesting when I talk to friends who are in law school and they're making their decisions and, you know, do they go somewhere and start on a small desk and push paper and kind of deal with it for a year and then finally get to where they want to go? Or do they go to a boutique firm and get more involved and have a lot more freedom and fingers in many pies and a lot more experience? That's, that's different ways to look at it. It just obviously comes down to the individual um, depending on do they like the title or do they want to experience a bunch mm-hmm. of things and start their own firm was that ever an idea too of when you you know going somewhere you think one day I'm going to have my own and, and I'm going to focus on my own thing and have my own law firm no I really didn't think about having my own law firm of course now interestingly I have my own business <laughs> so I basically have a consulting business and do a lot of other things um, and it's not really a career trajectory that I ever imagined so I don't really have regrets. The term regret does not really resonate with me. I think things happen. And the same sister I mentioned earlier who lived in Northern California would always say, with respect to everything that happens to you, you should ask one question. What lesson am I meant to learn from this? And that is an incredibly 
valuable philosophy, right? So if yeah. things go your way or if they don't go your way, ask, what, what, is the, what is the lesson to be learned? And you take that lesson, you apply it in the present, and you project it into the future. Yeah. Yeah, this... I just I just written that down and put a star around it because you're right. That's, um, you know, everything happens for a reason, and you can also learn and move forward from it. Um, you know, and take it however way you want to take it, right? And then the other thing that comes to mind is that quote: um, "Was it uh, this too shall pass?" Right? No matter what it is, like that feeling, it'll pass, and you'll figure out from there. Um, so, so you you do you then after graduating you come to Tulsa and you're doing some work what's kind of like life like for you at that point do you feel like you know I'm a lawyer I've reached all my goals now what do I do and, and I'm kind of successful and I've done you know I've graduated Harvard Law School you you know that's quite an achievement to do that what's that time like yeah I think when you first well I'll just sort of be specific to my experience so, so I felt for quite some time after graduating from law school and passing the bar, I felt inept because going to law school does not necessarily prepare you for the practice of law, particularly at a school like Harvard. I mean, Harvard Law School is more focused on the doctrinal aspects of law, the philosophy and, and so forth, rather than the practical, pragmatic, day-to-day -day practice of law. Because you're expected to get the black letter, called the black letter law, um, on your own. So the, the practice of law is different from the intellectual pursuit of law. And, and realizing that gives you a feeling or gave me a feeling sort of a, of inadequacy at first. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that, that does make sense, right? And you mentioned being at university and when you arrived, kind of having that imposter syndrome as well of like, do I belong? Am I qualified? And then when you get into the field, it's like, okay, everything I've learned is, yes, it works, but also it's not day-to-day, -day, it's different. And, you've, you know, it's, it's like passing most tests, right? You pass some test and you just learn the stuff that you've memorized, as you mentioned with history, you memorize it, and then you get in the real world, and you're like, okay, now I have to learn how to apply all this and deal with people and emotions and the law and how, you know, sadly, there's a lot of gray areas too, right? It's right. not just like the law is this, there are ways to navigate things as well. Did that stuff start, start to excite you? And kind of when you got into it, you think, oh, like, this is practical, like I'm not just signing papers and reading, you know, law and stuff. It's like, okay, now I get to really show my skills. I'm not sure I was ever excited. I mean, that's why I'm not practicing law today. I, don't, I think I could have been excited had I been doing constitutional law or something I was really intellectually interested in. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, mm, yeah. not so sure. So when, when it, you know, like you said, you're not super pumped about that stuff what were you super excited about are you doing now that you've graduated and you do have some other time to do certain things what were you focused on what were your interests and, and what kind of out outside of work was, was was a passion of yours I've always been interested in, in the, the notion of community so I've always been involved in 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 the community in a pretty big way. So one of the best things I ever did when I got to Tulsa 
was go through Leadership Tulsa, which is the community leadership program here in Tulsa that was one of the earliest in, in the United States, started in 1973. We're about to celebrate our 50th anniversary. So I went through Leadership Tulsa, which really familiarized me with all sectors of Tulsa. And Tulsa historically has thought of itself as being divided into quadrants, north, south, east, and west, which has some unfortunate aspects, but I digress. Um, so, but I learned about parts of Tulsa that I was not familiar with, and I learned about you know what makes Tulsa tick, you know, govern both in terms of governance and in terms of general community. Got got really involved in some nonprofits. I think the first board I sat on was the Metropolitan Tulsa Urban League. I ultimately chaired that board. I served on many many boards throughout the years, probably. I don't know, at least three dozen, probably more, well more over that. Yeah. Um, and so community service, community engagement, giving back to the community have always been really pretty important to me. Okay. Where, where does that passion come from? Is that something that parents kind of, you know, did yeah. as well? You also mom and dad giving back and in the community as well? And that's kind of where it's... Yeah. I, mean, I think my, both my parents were active in, in the community in different ways. My mother was active in church. My father uh, was active in community organizations, including at one point when we lived in Texas, small town Texas, Mineral Wells, he was the president of the NAACP in Mineral Wells in the, in the 60s, in the late 60s. Um, so that example, yeah. I, th I think really is, is important. And it's, it's not really a you know, community service to me is not so much of a choice as an obligation. Mm -hmm. Well, you you know, you, met, you mentioned mom and dad. What, what what are the big lessons that you took other than being in the community and, and, you know, being an obligation to give back? What are the big lessons that you learned, you know, growing up as a young man through seeing mom and dad's experiences and maybe wisdom? And um, I think sadly, when we look back at our parents and our lives, we don't not very few of us take the opportunity to have really deep conversations with our parents until it's too late. Right. And, and I, I'm interested to see if you, if that changed for you, did you have any great conversations with mom and dad that really shaped you and lessons that you learned that you've kind of kept true to today? I'm not sure I had great conversations with them. I think they spoke through their actions. Okay. So um, not so much through, through verbal communication. Um, and they always stressed, either through actions or words, um, that we could do whatever it is we wanted to do. So I'm obviously black. And so uh, there are challenges associated with race in this country. There were and there are. Um, and so, but, but I never felt inadequate on account of race, although, I certainly have felt discriminated against on account of race, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I'm going to give you an example of what I mean. There's little subtle things that happen to people. Mm -hmm. I'm in high school. I'm 17 years old in Fort Smith, Arkansas. I go to Fort Smith Northside High School. I'm the president of the senior class. I'm a member of all-state band. I'm in the honor society. I have a four-point grade average, and I'm valedictorian. My parents had not wanted me to work. Uh, but I finally convinced them that they should let me get a job because I needed gas for my, at a car. And it was 63 Biscayne, Chevy Biscayne. I went to the local mall, uh, to Osco Drugstore, which is a drugstore on the, on, on the mall, to apply for a job. 
I go upstairs and visit with the manager who's seen my resume. And the first thing he says to me is, the last one we hired didn't work out. Wow. So that, that's one of many examples I could give you. So fortunately for me, I knew that I was worthy mm-hmm. in large part because of my parents and my siblings, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's... I'll never understand that, you know, and that's that's one thing that, you know, yeah, I, that's I, I don't, I can't imagine what that's like, right? And 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 when you're aware of that, you go back over your life, and you you know probably at the time, you know, sometimes growing up, you don't even notice it when you're super young, right? And your parents obviously notice it because they've dealt with it a lot more than you have, and other other family members, you know, well, when you look back now, you're like, has things really changed, right? And and there's still those subtle things that even people don't know that they're doing. Right. You know, because they've grown up around their family and that's just how their family acted towards, you know. Well, the good news, of course, is that I'm a much more complete person than I was then. So then I couldn't really respond to him. Sure. And the power imbalance was was tremendous. I'm 17 years old. This is a grown man telling me this. Um, and there are a lot of things that I... I, I I, I wish I had said that I, I couldn't say at the time. Yeah. Um, but the fact that that has stuck with me all these years should be instructive. I mean, it should tell you something. Yeah, and it, it, it I'm sure it takes a lot of restraint, right, to grit your teeth, not do anything, show people through your, your actions, through your education, through community that, you know, you are immensely qualified for any job that you want to go do, not stuff that should be limited because the last one, quote, didn't work out. You know, that's, is that something that kind of just fueled your passion and fueled your kind of, not to say that you grew up with a chip on your shoulder, but something that deep down in your mind was something you referred to as, I can do anything. I can show you this. And that, you know, you might picture that man's face and you think, I'm going to show you. And, you know, you might never see that man again. But that experience is something that fuels, you know, going through a hard freshman year at Harvard or whatever it is. Well, I mean, I think, I think it can be a weight on your shoulders yeah. when, when you feel like you are kind of the exemplar for the race, which is on its face an absurd notion. But when people perceive you that way and and other people's fortunes and fates are going to rest on your performance that's a lot of weight to carry around yeah as a young as a young man it is right and how, how do you then you know even to this current day how do you take that lesson and you know you mentioned community and, and, and you've done a lot of you know been on many boards how do you take that lesson and, and put that into a context that people can also learn from that to say that you know you don't have to carry all this weight but this is how you deal with it and you show others and you know because the sad reality is you're you're dealing with it everyone's going to deal with it sadly as much as we say that it's not happening you know it's happening sadly right so how do you how do you give advice to that younger generation and the people that you mentor and talk to and community how do you pass that on without saying you know keep you cool and it because it's not easy right yeah it's easy to say it but it's not easy to actually do yeah it. I have to, it, it seems to me you have to navigate within the systems you find yourselves and you can simultaneously challenge those systems as you're navigating right so you operate in 
in, in the pool that you're in while simultaneously advocating that the water in the pool be changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But not muddying the water or figuring it, you know, like ruining your expectation or ruining your situation by outbursts or whatever. Um, yeah, I, like I said, I, I will never know what that's like. And, you know, it's something that needs to be, you know, for however many years of, of, you know, it's been talked about and dealt with and not dealt with and used as a political figure or whatever it is, the sad reality is it's going to take hundreds of years likely to get through that generations to phase out the lessons that were ingrained in some families because that's how their parents and grandparents were and whatever. The one thing I do want to touch on is you mentioned getting into the community, talking about uh, leadership Tulsa. Is that when you were first kind of aware of the Greenwood district and learned more about that when you mentioned kind of learning more about Tulsa and parts of Tulsa you hadn't been to? Was that the time it first came on the radar? No, actually, I credit the Oklahoma Eagle, the black newspaper here, for introducing me to this history because, as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> they asked me to write a guest editorial column periodically, which I did. And they asked me to do a series on the Greenwood history, which I did. And I didn't really know much about the history at the time. Um, it certainly was not being talked about to the extent that it is now. There was a very limited familiarity with the, the history and what familiarity there was was at a pretty superficial level. And so I became interested and that's why I ended up writing the first book. Um, then a lot of things happened after that. You know, the state created what, what was called uh, the Oklahoma Commission to Study the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921. That was created in 1997 and did a report in 2001. That generated international interest because one of the things the commission was tasked with was looking at the issue of, of, of reparations. And because South Africa was having the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and a lot of other things were going on worldwide, it generated a lot of attention. And then subsequent to that, many, many things have happened. Books and articles and, and documentaries have been, have been done. Then we just commemorated the centennial in 2021, which generated even more attention with more documentaries and more books, and uh, including a new book by, by myself, uh, Black Wall Street 100, and different kinds of projects that have really leveraged uh, the history. Yeah, it's uh, that, you know, when, when you have a centenary and you have, you know, the light and the news media and everything pointing eyes and cameras at you, it's a real opportunity to remind people and to use that time as, you know, we talk about history and, and kids learning in school. And, you know, I personally, I think we shouldn't, you know, this history happens for a reason, right? And then, like you said earlier, the you know, what lesson am I supposed to learn from this? Well, you know, when you look back at history, not everything's great, but the lessons we can learn from this are more valuable than taking that part of history out of history textbooks and not learning about it. And yeah, so the best know, there's the, a political way to do that or whatever, but history should be learned from, like you said, not taken out of textbooks and I think forgotten the, about. The best response to that is something that Maya Angelou said, and I use it all the time. She said, our history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But if faced with courage, it need not be lived again. Yeah, and now we have this incredible district getting, you know, 
investment dollars and rebirth and growth and businesses and I know your office right across the street and you know it's 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 probably great to be here every day and just to see the life and the, and the memories that are carried through you know this building and, and now this building has become a tourist attraction and people are coming through to listen to it and you know the, the barber chair exhibit is fantastic and I think the ending you know when you come through that amphitheater and you come out and you see the, the notes on the, the light up on you know the wall and stuff like it's an extremely powerful experience and I people listening I hope if you haven't been up here you should come up here and spend time and then go through it um, what has it been like having this project and you being the, the specific curator for this you know this this building and this experience what has that been like for you you know having spent some time here being in the law practice probably helped you a little bit having a passion for sociology and economics and, and history and writing all the books personally what's it like to, to be a part of this project Groom Rising is, is great because it connects the dots and it has a certain universality. The, the, the notion that runs through this facility that we share with, with everyone in the world is what I call shared humanity. And that is, if you don't learn anything else from this experience, you should learn that we as individuals, as people are inextricably intertwined our fates are linked um, so it, it's important that we treat each and every person with the dignity and respect to which he or she is entitled and if we don't do that that's when things like the massacre happen yeah. or the holocaust or the internment of Japanese people of Japanese ancestry during World War II so I think this facility resonates with people from all walks of life and from all geographic spaces just because of that notion of, of shared humanity. Yeah, and when you go, like you just mentioned, like people probably don't, don't realize how big 1921 was and how big the events of that in global history impacted, you know, so many things. Like you mentioned, the, you know, the uh, Chinese in World War II or the Holocaust, like, this is something that, that is on par with, sadly, the destruction that happened in those, and, and it doesn't, it is now getting the recognition, it probably didn't before that. Um, are there any stories from, from your research and, and, and this project, you know, I'm sure there's so many, but there is there any that come to mind that, that you really enjoy sharing of, of stories of, you know, either overcoming or families that have been through, and I'm, I'm sure there's hundreds, but are there any kind of that just come to mind that you were, you know, shocked to find out great to inspire or I mean stuff that really resonates you know there, there you're right there are hundreds of, of all of stories of all kinds uh, one of the interesting stories about resilience it involves Mount Zion Baptist Church which is still here it's just northwest of, of here Mount Zion was a brand new church when the massacre happened in 1921 it had been built at a cost of Roughly seventy-five thousand dollars in nineteen twenty-one money, uh, fifty thousand of which had been borrowed from a single um, investor. So they had a, mor had a mortgage. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, one of the stories that was bandied about town during the massacre was that Mount Zion was being used by the black community as kind of a weapons stockpile. So when the, the mob came over the Frisco tracks and into the Greenwood District, it was easy for them to, to go right to Mount Zion and burn it down, which they did. 
So post massacre, the, you may have seen, in fact, photos of Mount Zion on fire being destroyed because they're they're prominent photos. Church was totally destroyed, and so after May 31st and June 1st, the dates of the massacre, there were a number of decisions to be made. One was with respect to Mount Zion, do we still have a church? And of course, the answer is, to the extent that there are people who attended Mount Zion, we still have a church because the people are the church, not the edifice, and the edifice is long gone. Um, the members then looked to see if they had an insurance policy. Well, they did have an insurance policy, but like many insurance policies during the period, there was an exclusionary clause that says we won't pay proceeds if the damage was occasioned by riot or civil unrest. That's why the term riot has such significance and salience during this period. The next thing they did was they consulted a lawyer. And I tell people, I'm a lawyer. I think consulting a lawyer is always a brilliant move. And the lawyer talked to them about this legal concept called bankruptcy where they could petition the court and have their debt eliminated or restructured in some way through the bankruptcy process. They decided that they had a higher moral obligation. They had borrowed this $50,000 from a single individual in good faith. He'd lent it in good faith and they had to repay it. They spent the next 20, 30 years raising money to pay off the mortgage and simultaneously raising money to build a new edifice. Um, lots of fundraising strategies and, and devices. Ultimately, they were successful. They paid off the mortgage. They, they rebuilt the edifice. It's a prominent member of the Greenwood community even today as we speak. Yeah. So that's really the story of just like resilience. The indomitable human spirit is what I call it. Yeah, yeah, re rebuilding, not taking no for an answer. And, you know, like you said, the people of the church, not, you know, the building is great, but the people is what make the community and the church. And, and yeah, there's, there's hundreds of stories, you know. Um, the other thing that kind of came to mind when you, when you were talking about, you know, as we've been telling stories here is, you talk about um, the black newspaper, the Oklahoma Eagle, and you writing a column constantly for that. What um, was it? Was it quite hard for you initially to write that column, or was it quite easy to find the topics? I mean, writing a column consistently is no not an easy thing to do, you know. And picking the right words and saying, you know, not writing too much or whatever it is, to, to consistently do that is that kind of something that started your writing career when you had time was the first thing was the column and then you go into the 10 books or is it something that you may have written a book until that point and, and I know you said you wrote a book as well from that yeah. column is that kind of what so the editorial columns were before You're any of the books gotcha. and uh, as I recall it's been a long time ago but I, I'm, I think a lot of the columns were kind of motivational inspirational okay. things that I wanted to write about yeah. you know yeah. um or kind of hot topic things, what's going on in education, those sorts of things. Yeah. Did you, you mentioned kind of um, motivational stuff, and, and, and obviously you have a consulting business. Was that a plan to go into after law and getting in law practice? Was no. Was a plan to go into, a, nobody said, hey, you should be, you've done all this stuff, you've gone no. into consulting. Was a plan to have any of your own businesses? No. Not at all? Things just happen the way that they happen. I, you yeah. know, I, 
sometimes you just feel your way through whatever seems right at the time you have to just sort of go with it yeah. go with go with the hunch I mean I have a passion for um, diversity equity inclusion work which is a lot of what I do in terms of consulting um, I have a pro- passion for nonprofit leadership and management which is something I've taught and something I, I do in the way of consulting mm-hmm. I do a lot of public speaking talking about this history or the history of the all black towns or um, any number of other topics relating particularly to the African American experience mm-hmm. and so these things just kind of worked out the way that they worked out yeah I I also generally try to live my life like that too right it's like I have you know I have my kind of north star that I want to get to at some point and that has all get there but I also leave myself open to opportunities things that may seem right at the time may not timing's everything obviously and and seeing if they work and you know Uh, the the one thing I will say about that is um, I'm very much a Mm self-starter and I think I'm quite self-aware I mean I know what my capacities are and I know what my strengths are and I know how to leverage those and so being in a corporate type context may not be the best thing for me uh, since other people don't always know what you know about yourself mm-hmm. yeah you mentioned um, you mentioned being in band in high school is music a huge passion still today and when you go when you're getting into band as a, as a young age what was the instrument that you played I played trumpet and music is, is not a passion but and in fact I didn't want to be in the band my father he made us play instruments so and and I I really resented him at the very beginning but once I started I loved it Um, learned to read music and um, all the things that you can get from that kind of collective experience were actually really good for me so not that you don't have like obviously this this district also has you know and and there's some fantastic black musicians out there. Um, you know, I, Gary Clark Jr. is coming to Oklahoma City soon and Tulsa, actually. And, you know, you think B.B. King and I love the blues music. So I think of all that and, and just the culture that's also around that, right? And the time and just I could listen to blues music for a very long time. Um, you mentioned trumpet and not liking it beginning because dad made you want to do it. Did he just say, hey, you guys are going to do this because you're going to learn life lessons and overcome something? Or, like, or was it just... No, I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly what his thinking was, yeah. but he knew that, that ex- expanding our horizons and exposing that other dimension was somehow helpful to us. Yeah. I don't think he was thinking, oh, you know, left brain activity, right brain activity, <laughs> blah, blah. No, it wasn't that complicated in his mind, but he knew it was good. Yeah. He, 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 had, he somehow knew that it was it was a good thing, mm-hmm. and of course, all the studies indicate that you know exposure to to, to music, like in band, mm-hmm. I think it, it it enhances your mathematical skills. It does a, a lot of things for you. Yeah. Uh, moving on to current time, you mentioned you're working on book number eleven. Tell us about that. What, what's coming? What are you working on? How far along in the process are you? And will there be others coming after? Um, I don't know about others coming after. I have to focus on the one I'm working on right now, but it's called uh, 10 Ways We Can Advance Social Justice Without Destroying One Another. Okay. And the idea is that it's kind of a social justice primer. So for people who want to be engaged in issues around social justice but don't know what to do, 
and in short, I, I, I think in threes. So I think there are three, three key things, overarching things that, that one can do. One is introspection, looking at yourself and seeing how you're situated in the environment. Two is engagement, plugging into organizations that are doing work in the area that you want to do. And then third is, is advocacy. How do you make broader macro changes that will help the cause that you're interested in? So introspection, engagement, and advocacy are the things that I sort of stress and go into a lot more de- more detail using stories and, and so forth. Yeah. Uh, does that does the book writing take up a lot more of your time in the current day, or, or is it more on the speaking, business consulting side of things and, and that part of day-to-day life now? It just depends. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't write. And I, 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 I guess there are people who say, you know, I, I get up and I write from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. in the morning, and I take a break, and I, yeah. I don't do any of that. Am I right when I feels like I should be writing Um, and I try to create a manuscript and then what's most helpful to me is I usually select eight to ten people uh, from different backgrounds who are willing to to look at the manuscript and offer me constructive feedback so when I do that I'm not giving you a manuscript for you to say to me, oh, I love this, this is so good. That does me absolutely no good whatsoever. So sometimes I'll, uh, I'll give it to somebody who's really a detail-oriented person and will spot all the comma splices and punctuational stuff. <clears throat> Another person might ignore all that and say, you know, that third chapter it really doesn't fit that third chapter should be chapter six and chapter six maybe you should move that to chapter three you know that kind of big stuff all that kind of feedback is really helpful to me because the difficulty in the writing for me is not the writing per se it's the editing Mm -hmm. getting it into a, a form that you are comfortable with and frankly I don't think I'm unique in this if I pick up a book that I've written today and you give me a red pen I probably would start marking you know I'd probably change some things yeah that's the the beauty of how we evolve right and how we see things and you mentioned the red pen the first thing that comes to mind is Jenny Campbell the Oklahoma Hall of Fame and some people are scared of Jenny's red pen (laughs) but I think the first time I sent her her, a piece of work she uh, Shannon actually called me and said before I send this back to you just know that Jenny sees this from a term of you know she's not trying to be nasty to you by going through this with red pen which I think more people should send do that of what you do right and it doesn't serve us any good to send it to your mom or a parent or some family that's gonna say you're doing great honey this is awesome like no tell me how i need to improve because then i'll live yeah and in, in my case the sort of um safety valve is that i know that i'm the author and if you if you send me something that's all marked up and i don't like your 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 feedback whether it's constructive or not i don't have to accept it <laughs> yeah right I'm, I'm the ultimate arbiter of what 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 gets published right uh, finishing up, obviously you're inducted in the Oklahoma Hall of Fame 2021. Uh, where were you the day you got that phone call? And how was that phone call? I think I was in my office. I was, it was definitely a surprise. I wasn't, it's not something I even thought about. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, being inducted and, and 
having that day and who, who was your um, who introduced you that day Ken Lovett okay what was your relationship with Ken so Kenny and I have been friends for well probably more than 20 years uh, Ken is the executive director of the George Kaiser Family Foundation okay but he's done a lot of other stuff before he's a lawyer he went to Yale um Many years ago, I probably, it may have been 20 years ago by now, he and I started an organization called the Oasis Project, which was designed to um, improve black-Jewish relationships. Okay. And there's a, there's a pretty rich history of black-Jewish relationships, by the way, that many people are not aware of, including the formation of NAACP and all sorts of other historical monuments. Anyway, so that's how I really got to know him first. And then he moved to to D.C. and he was, I think he was like chief counsel for the FBI or I don't know, something. And then moved back, ultimately. Yeah. Did you ever think about getting into politics or office or running that, that side of things? I was very politically active, not, not partisan politically, sure. but, but when I was in school, I was very active, polit- running, running for office. Um, I was president of my junior high school. I was president of my senior class. Um, but in the real world, um, given the extreme partisanship and all the other things that go along with it, it's just not worth it to me. Okay. Still- some, somebody needs to do it, but, but it's not going to be me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you, some people like they see it or they don't right it's just right. I don't see it I agree with you it's not for me it's not something I I would want to do or deal with um, in, in this country compared to mine it's a sport <laughs> I think it's how I look at it uh, back to the Oklahoma Hall of Fame uh, two questions who in the Oklahoma Hall of Fame that's currently inducted do you really resonate with look up to and then second question is who is isn't in the Oklahoma Hall of Fame that you would like to see in the Hall of Fame. Oh, God. <laughs> Put you on the spot. You don't have to answer any of those questions. I mean, there, there's so many people in the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. I don't even... Yeah. One person that comes to mind, just because I wish I hadn't gotten to know her better, was Wilma Mankiller. Okay. Um, I met her several times, but didn't know her well. But I just admired... She had a certain kind of spirit uh-huh. that I think really resonated with people generally and she had a presence um, and a kind of charisma that I admired Um, and I admired that you know she was first female chief in Cherokee Nation and just a lot about her that really was impressive to me Mm -hmm. yeah who's not in I'm not sure because I don't know. I don't know <laughs> yeah. if I know everybody who's in. Is Clara Looper in the Hall of Fame? Yes, she is. I thought she probably was. I've been thinking about Clara Looper because I'm working on a project called the Oklahoma Civil Rights Trail. Okay. And I know that they're building a Clara Looper Center in Oklahoma City, and, and that's going to be connected to Greenwood Rising, which is going to be connected to several of the 13 of the original black towns, and also Standing Bear Museum and, and Monument in Ponca City. And then Fairfax, which is a key site in the Osage Reign of Terror. And uh, that's why I thought about Clara Looper. Yeah. And I've been on a couple of panels now with, with David Grant, who's the author of Killers of the Flower Moon. Okay. We were on a panel together about two weeks ago in Chickasha. And so the, 
the relationships between these stories, which happened, the Greenwood massacre happened in 21. Well, that's that's really the part of the period of the Osage reign of terror in places like Fairfax. So uh, the fact that all this incredible violence was happening yeah. in that period it was something that we talked about in the context of that panel. Yeah. My, my last question following on from that was going to be, you know, what, what are you working on right now in the future? And it does sound like that is the next thing and a future of, of not only what you're working on, but but the future projects from this building and Greenwood Rising as well. Yeah, the, the um, Oklahoma Civil Rights Trail is the, is the thing I'm working on yeah. currently and in fact we have I think it just passed out of the Senate where we um, had a, a bill proposed that would award us I think 1.5 million dollars mm-hmm. and it was I think it was passed unanimously out of the, out of the Senate a couple of days yesterday or a couple of days ago okay. and it goes to the house we'll see what happens I think it will it'll pass it's a good idea um, we elevate our history we yeah. take advantage of, of cultural tourism we help revitalize some of these small towns. What's bad in that? It's, yeah. all, it's all good. Right. Uh, and then last question is, through all the experiences that you've had, through all the stuff that you've learned, all the research, the books, the consulting business, um, are there any life experiences that you are yet to accomplish that you want to tick off the list? And that could be traveling somewhere it doesn't it could be personal it could be business whatever it is is there anything that comes to mind that is you know before my time is up I want to experience this I can't think of anything because I don't yeah because I don't spend a lot of time wishing I could and I mean I, I, I spend most of my time doing tr- trying to do things and be active and and seizing the moment okay. rather than than looking in the past and regretting yeah, yeah, or yeah. looking for things that I wish I could do but but haven't done. Okay. So um, what are you, I guess, doing that, I mean, I, guess, I'm, I don't want to ask you what are you doing that you want to do next, like, you know, but um, have you always been like that? Have you always been someone that ha- you haven't really set goals and you're not like, so a, you're not s- like a five-year yeah, plan so, person or whatever? Yeah, I don't do five-year plans and all that. I do yeah. set goals. I mean, I think, I, uh, well, let me put it this way. I do believe in visioning. Yeah. So for, uh, I'll give you one example. I've been involved in the nonprofit community for a very long time. I've led, organiz- led boards, led organizations. And at one point I said, you know, I would like to lead a national Nonprofit board, and I kept that in my mind. And I, and several years ago, I was the president of the Community Leadership Association, which is the national nonprofit board to which many of the community leadership organizations belong to. So, it's a more, I think, diffuse way of of setting. Goals. I mean, I don't. I don't sit down with a piece yeah. of paper and write sure. out a five-year plan. But I think about, you know, I want to do this. Yeah, I'm gonna get there. Why? Why visual, vision, visualization? Why, why? Where did that come from? I don't know. Okay. 
because I mean it's powerful yeah. a lot of people I speak to they say the same thing they have a vision board you know or they have something on their phone screen that they want to do and accomplish and most of the time it's it's you know something that's tangible right it might be a car or it might be a house or whatever um, but you know and so now I, there is one thing I do want to do yeah. that I can think of and it's sort of in my mind as 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 a vi- vision mm-hmm. uh, I do want to serve on a for-profit board okay. like a business board and I haven't done that okay sounds uh, you'd be a great resource to that obviously with your experience and everything and um yeah, it's. Uh, do you have anything finishing up? Lastly, that that you know, there's, there's great lessons that you've talked about in in this last hour, uh, and I really appreciate you for sharing. Is there anything in you know? You, you mentioned you're you're a man of threes. Is there anything that you want to leave people listening with? Whether that's around diversity and inclusion, whether that's around writing, whether that's around what lesson can you learn from this? Is there anything that you have, like a parting gift that you give to people when you go do speak somewhere that you always kind of resonate to and you know remind people of? Yeah, and it, it applies generally to, to very a, a very vast array of different situations. That's not mine originally, but it's very powerful um, because I think we often are confronted with circumstances that seem overwhelming, and we don't know how we can engage and make it. Make a make a difference. So I'll, I'll I'll quote Arthur Ashe, the famous tennis player and humanitarian. And it, it, it's threes again. So start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. It's okay. great, great advice. Uh, Thank you so much for an hour of your time. Thank you for everything you do. Um, thank you for sharing the passion that you have um, and, and, and the things that you've done. I'm excited to learn from you, uh, take these these you know this advice that you've given, uh, and also you know just kind of put one foot in front of the other, right? And like you just said, start with what you have. I think starting is the hardest thing to do. So thank you so much. Uh, again, congratulations on being inducted to the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. Uh, it was great to be there on your induction night uh, and see that whole ceremony. Uh, you have a great class, uh, and gr- thanks for being the you know the curator of this incredible building and what it stands for. It's um, I'm sure there's a lot of family members out there that are very proud of you uh, and what you've been done, what you've done, and continue to do. So, for people listening, I will put the links to uh, Hannibal's website, Greenwood Rising, in the, in, in the description, and uh, we will catch you next episode. Cheers. Hope you guys enjoyed that great episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, huge shout out to our sponsors, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, sharing Oklahoma story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on Instagram for daily updates at oklahomahof. Our other sponsor, the Chickasaw Nation, amazing sponsor they do amazing things for the state and they're always sponsoring something in oklahoma they're a huge supporter of oklahoma and without their support we wouldn't be able to do what we do our third sponsor is diffie ford lincoln down in el reno now this one makes me so happy because these guys are great friends of mine um play a lot of golf together i've bought my cars from them do most of my oil changes down there, have a cup of coffee, hang out down in El Reno. It's a good spot to go. And not only are they great friends, but they provide a great service. So for over 60 years, a third generation family owned 
Oklahoma business. Down in El Reno, they're also in Bethany as well. So people in the Bethany area know the Diffies really well. But if you're looking for anything new used, um, Ford, Lincoln, or whatever, I'm sure they could find anything you want. Um, check them out, DiffieFord.net, and then on Instagram at DiffieFordLincoln. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.